Amen. Amen. You all can take your seats. Uh, before we begin, I just want to let you know it, that we sent out an email this week. I hope that you received it for the members of the church to come to a special meeting on Tuesday night, July the 18th at 7 o'clock right here in uh, the uh, worship center. We, we have two projects that uh, we as elders and uh, another uh, team called the core team have been working on for quite a long time to let you know about because we want to go ahead with those projects. The first project is to, is to bring our um, uh, ramp up to ADA code uh, so that we're meeting the codes that need to be met for those who are um, in wheelchairs or handicapped in any way can get into the building with ease. Now the second project, I know you're going to love this, it's about air conditioning. Oh, listen, the first service, they gave me a standing ovation. <laughs> but yes, we, we do want to look at that as well. Uh, actually, it's an upgrade of the heating system as well as the air conditioning in here and also in the commons. So the actual, the information meeting is Tuesday the 18th, 7 o'clock, right here. Two weeks later, we'll be voting on these um, uh, proposals. Um, uh, during the weekend services. So it's not another special meeting. It's just you come to church that weekend. You can vote thumbs up or thumbs down on both or one or whatever you happen to think. So that's what we're going to be doing. I just thought it would be interesting to let you know that or you might be interested in hearing it. And if you don't vote for air conditioning, I quit. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I don't want you to take that as a threat. No brag, just fact. Oh. <laughs> Shall we pray and get our focus where it belongs? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we have a, a pretty important topic in front of us this morning. It's about prayer and how we know that you hear our prayer. So I know that uh, many of us go through times of doubt whether or not you actually hear us. And so we pray that you will help us you, by building our faith, building our trust, when your word says, you hear our prayers, we believe it. So build in us the faith that we need today um, to overcome our doubts or our fears or whatever. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. I've always thought that ears are kind of a funny thing. I don't go around inspecting them, of course. But when I was a kid, I hated my ears. I mean, they were just too big for my head. I looked like Princess Leia. And, and whenever we'd have class pictures, I just desperately didn't want to do it because I knew what was going to happen. I turned, I tried to turn away from the camera. And I get so depressed. I go home. My mother said, you know, don't worry about it. You'll grow into your ears just like your uncle did. Well, that wasn't much help for me, you know, in eighth, seventh, eighth grade. It just wasn't very much help. But apparently I did actually grow into my ears, so they're kind of proportional to my head right now. So that's, I'm glad of that. God did that. But in the wisdom of God, I, I, want to I want you to think about the wisdom of God of giving us the gift of hearing and ears to do that with. Now remember, we are always told we have two ears and one mouth, and there's a reason for that. Listen more than you talk. So we're going to listen. Uh, and besides, Jesus was often saying, he who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. So our, our ears are really an amazing part of our body. I don't want to, you know, go into uh, too much detail. Um, Kevin, it looks like it's up to you to make things happen this morning because this isn't, this isn't working. So you're on, buddy. Don't mess me up or these lovely people. Where are we at? Okay, very good. I'll just trust you, Kevin. You're my man. Okay, so, so um, uh, uh, our ears are this very intricate little tiny bones and, and um, you know, featherly light things along the way. Whenever a sound comes in one into our ears, um, because our ears are close to our brain, which is a very good thing, our brains interpret the sound, and that's how we hear. So this is, this is just really marvelous. Um, but that's not the only thing that our ears do. They also help us to keep balance. And you know, like if you've ever had vertigo or swimmer's ear or something like that, what's going on is there's a sloshing going around in the cochlear part of your, of your ear uh, canal, and it, it's tipping you one way or, or the other, and it's hard to keep your balance. So, so uh, our, our, our body is fearfully one and wonderfully made, amen? That's just... That's the way you have to, have to think about these things. Now, one of the suggestions that came to us was this very question, how do I know that God hears my prayers or our prayers? And um, actually, I found the answer. I mean, I could end the sermon right here, actually. Psalm 94, here's what it says. Is the one who made your ears deaf? End of sermon. Let's pray. Because the answer to that is no. Of course he's not deaf. He made ears. The... Uh, fact of the matter is God hears everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. And it, we're going to read scriptures, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to read them for you, where it says that, you know, the cry of my voice came into his ears. Now, God is a spirit. He, he doesn't have ears like we have ears. And, and so uh, I, I, I risk teaching you a new word today for some of you. It's called anthropomorphism. And I was asked about it between services. What does it mean? It just simply means that there's a characteristic of, of our experience that we apply to, um, to God or to, or to other things. Like how many times have you read in the Bible that the, the trees will clap their hands? Have you noticed trees don't have cans? They just don't have hands. So we apply the same thing to God. He hears. He has an ear to hear. And what, we're, what God is doing is, is revealing something about himself to us in a way that we can understand and relate to. And so when we talk about God hearing our prayers and, or our prayers come into his ear, this is what we're, what we're talking about. Now, this question about it actually, you know, we got about 40, 40 uh, topics and this particular one would not leave me alone. I tried to ignore it. I, I said, I don't want to do this. I don't even know how I would approach the subject. I, I just want to just let it go away. And while all the time on vacation, it stayed with me. It just rattled around in my brain. And, um, and, and, and so I thought, I can't, I can't really ignore this. And I'm not even sure how I'm going to tackle this subject. But I will do it. Now, we know... We know, I think we know when God hears our prayers and we get an immediate answer, yes? You pray about something and then boom, there you see it. That happened to me just last week. doesn't happen very often, I've got to tell you. But last week I prayed about a situation in the morning. I was really asking God for direction. I, you know, I didn't know what he wanted me to do about that situation. And so I just prayed, God, you know, I'm really open to whatever you want. By that afternoon, I knew what I was supposed to do. Now, that's rare, but I love it when it happens. How about you? 
Now, sometimes God doesn't answer that quickly. Um, answers may not come for a while. Sometimes they come in ways we don't even expect. Sometimes they don't even come in our lifetime. I read a story several years ago about a pastor in, I think, 17th, 18th century England who was praying for revival in his church because there was revival going on all around his city in other cities. And he prayed desperately for 12 years that God would bring revival to his people. And then he died. The next year, revival came to that church. So we may not get answers in our own lifetime, but there will always be an answer. Now, the number of verses that talk about God hearing our prayers, they're, they're multiple. They're, they're nearly 100, I suppose. I didn't take time to count them all. But here's a few uh, samples. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called on the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. Psalm 4. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And Psalm 34, verse 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So I knew these kinds of verses were in the scripture to encourage us in prayer, to give us assurance in prayer. And then I read Psalm 28, and another question came to mind as I read this particular psalm. Psalm 28, we're going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace to their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and not build them up and, and build them up no more. And look at verse 6. This is, this is where the question in my mind came. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Um, and, he, and then he goes on. The Lord is my strength. He's my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with him uh, and with my song I give him thanks. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Did you see what's going on in David there? He's, he's the first five verses, he is... He is crying out to God, give me mercy, help me. There's evil people around. We don't know the circumstances that brought this, this psalm to, to be, but David is obviously vexed. I mean, there's some horrible things going on. He's not happy about any of it. The circumstances are bad. He wants God to fix it. And then immediately in verse 6, he goes, yay, God heard me. And, then, and I thought, how did that happen? How did it happen that David had assurance at that very moment? Was it something the Spirit of God did him to give him assurance that God heard his prayer? Or the only other option is he wrote this psalm later after the circumstances had changed in his life, and then he penned the psalm. I don't know the answer. Um, I, I don't know the answer. But I wondered, how did that assurance come to David? 
So that's what I really want to focus on in the substance of this sermon is how do, how do we have assurance? Where does our assurance come from that God actually does hear us? So what I, what I did, uh, just to let you know kind of the way I think, when, when I think about people who really know how to pray, I know people in my life who are like that, but the experiences of the Puritans seem to be the richest experiences of men and women in prayer. There's just something about their understanding of God, their approach to God, and the richness of how they were able to pray such amazing prayers and see God do some amazing things in their lives. So I went to one. His name was Thomas Boston. And I picked him because I didn't know much about him, in fact. But I wanted to know from Boston... What is the assurance that we are heard in prayer? Because he talked about it often. He did. He, he, mentioned, he mentioned he had a very difficult life. I believe his wife was an invalid. I'm not sure when that happened in their marriage. Uh, but, you know, they, they, uh, they, they had a hard life. This is the early uh, uh, 18th century, you know, the early 1700s. And, and uh, I, I think he might have lost a child or two. So there's really a lot of difficulty. And that difficulty forced him to pray. Difficulty always does that. It always moves us towards God, or it can, and, and it, it should. And so he preached often about the believer's prayer life. But for him, the key to effective praying was praying in Jesus' name. That just seemed to be like ground zero for, Bo for Boston. He would, he would mention John 14 Often he and John 14, as Jesus speaking, says, "Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it." Jesus says that twice, and Boston was adamant. He was adamant that the basis on which God hears the prayers of His children is praying in Jesus' name, and uh, he he would he would I think he had a sense of humor I guess he, he would even tell his church now listen church praying in Jesus name doesn't mean you tag on the words in Jesus name at the end of every prayer it's not a magic formula but we do that don't we so he he's not opposed to saying it we can say in Jesus name at the end of a prayer at the beginning of a prayer in the middle of a prayer um, we anywhere if you want it's fine Good. in fact probably is a good idea because it reminds us that we're not there in our own name. We're not coming to God in our own merits. We're coming to God in Jesus' name. So that warning is good and probably a good reminder for us. So think about what it means to come in the name of somebody else. Well, um, if, if, let's, let's assume um, it, a, a circumstance. Uh, the President of the United States wants to invite you to the White House in a state dinner at which uh, King Charles III is going to be honored in a state dinner. Okay? Probably nobody in this room would ever have that happen except maybe Ian down here. <laughs> um, but let's assume that happens. Somebody comes to you and they knock on your door or whatever and they say, I have a message for you from the President of the United States. It's an invitation to the White House, a state dinner for King Charles III. Here you go. If you don't have that card, you don't get in. The person who brought it to you has no authority except to bring it to you. That's the only responsibility and authority that person has. 
Now you have a card with this invitation on it that will get you into the White House through the Secret Service, through all of the stuff you have to go through, and now you get to go to a place you would never have gotten into without that card. That's what it's like to pray in Jesus' name. Now, now we have that authorization, but we also have to remember that Jesus' name means more than just in Jesus' name. His name is a significant name in Scripture, just as all names in the Old Testament seem to carry with them a significant weight of meaning. So, for example, a name can um, tell you about a person's origin, can tell you about the person of that per, uh, that the purpose of that person's life. Um, it could tell you something about their character and their traits. And with Jesus and his name, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, all of the names of Jesus, they represent his origin. He is from heaven. They also tell us about his character. He is sinless and compassionate to sinners. They also his name also tells us about his purpose in the world. He is the Savior of the world. And his current work right now, what he's doing right now, is his intercessory prayer for the believers. And so when we go to God in prayer, we go as representatives of Jesus' character, purpose, all of that. It is not our standing. It is our standing in Christ that matters to God. So this is, this is to help us remember what it means to us to pray in Jesus' name so that we can, we can you know, just move away from just, you know, having a tag at the end of a prayer and just kind of rushing on with it. But to remember what's going on when we come to God in prayer. So there are four principles from Scripture that teach us about praying in Jesus' name. The first one is to pray with joyful awe in God. Now, Jesus taught us this right from the beginning. Didn't he say, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not a word we often use, hallowed, but it means be honored, be glorified, be praised. Let your name be praised throughout all the earth. Every nation should praise and, and honor and glorify the name of God. And God, but start with me. Let my presence be a glory to your name. Now, but that's not all. When I use the word awe, I mean a particular kind of approach, a disposition of the heart and mind. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 25. This is how the Old Testament prophets especially spoke of God. Um, th this is God speaking to Isaiah. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Isaiah is writing, he's talking about the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the universe. Look up into the universe. Look at creation. Who put creation there? Look at its wonder and its beauty and its intricacy. And God is saying, who created these? The answer, God. He who brings out their host by number, looks at calling them by name. God has given a name to every star, every planet, everywhere in the universe, and even among those we cannot see. He's given them a name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one 
is ever missing. This is an amazing God. So our approach to God in prayer begins with a reverential, joyful disposition of the heart that longs for God's majesty to be glorified, magnified, made big, because that is the goal of creation. We're not the center of things. God is, and we need to remember that. There's a, a story I may not get all the details right, but it, I get the point right. There's a story. Uh, during World War II, FDR had Winston Churchill come over to his estate in Hyde Park, New York, upstate New York. And it's a beautiful estate if you've ever been there. And out the back, you see the Hudson River. It's gorgeous, Hudson River Valley. And Churchill was there, and they'd had dinner, of course. And then they, they went out back and sat together. I suppose they smoked cigars together. And then he, he, they're looking out over this. The sun is beginning to set. The stars are coming out. And they start talking about the wonders of creation that they've seen. And they talk to each other about all of these stars and the planets and wondering what it's all like. And their whole focus is now on creation and the God who created it. And this went on for some time. And then FDR turned to uh, Churchill and he said, well, Winston, it's probably time for us to go to bed. We have witnessed and been humbled by creation, so now we know our place in the universe. Let's go inside. Isn't that wonderful? We know our place in the universe. It's to be humble before our God. So God is honored as the one with absolute power and praise. Who is like you, O Lord? Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way our Lord and God is near us whenever we pray to him? That's Moses, by the way. You know, God is honored in, in so many ways to praise him as distinct. There is no one like him. You know, when Solomon built the temple, it was beautiful. Everyone admired it. It, it was just awe-inspiring. But even Solomon said, this temple is not sufficient for God. It's too puny, is basically what he said. Therefore, we should set our hearts in the right direction when we pray. We should fix our hearts on the incomparability of God, no power on earth compares to his power. When God speaks, the cedars of Lebanon shake. As powerful as all of the world's nations and military may be, God considers them nothing more than a drop of water. He says they don't even weigh as much as a single grain of dust on a scale. How majestic is our God? Is there anyone who can give God wise counsel? The prophets ask, no is the answer. Now, a small illustration of this approach to God and what that might be like. Just think about somebody that you really super admire. You know, it could be an entertainer, a sports person, you know, whatever. Uh, I know, Taylor Swift. Right? It's, oh, boy, if I can get a selfie with Taylor Swift, my life would be complete. Okay, so we all have people like that, that we really admire them. And, you know, I may even approach hero worship, but we don't want to go there. So we just really admire people like that. I've had several in my life that were like that, and I just thought, boy, if I could ever meet them, I'd have a great conversation, mostly, you know, theology, great theology conversation. Well, I had the opportunity to meet somebody like that. His name was R.C. Sproul. Now, R.C. Sproul was speaking at a conference that I was at, 
And uh, it was in a hotel. It was one of the mornings. I was late getting up. I was late getting down to the conference. Almost everybody was down there by now. So I'm running to the elevator, and I get in the elevator, and we go down two floors, and the doors open, and there is Dr. R.C. Sproul and his wife, Vesta. And they walk in. I backed up against the wall. You know, it's like, oh, no, what do I do now? You know, this is Dr. Sproul. Are you kidding me? What do I say? I don't want to embarrass myself. I know I'm going to say something stupid. And I didn't do this, but I did it mentally. So he obviously looked at me, and he knew I was, like, weirded out. And he said, so, how are you enjoying the conference so far? And I great. It's really wonderful. Great job. It was so bad. So then, I guess he figured he could break the ice this way, and he says, hey, do you like my outfit that I'm wearing? Now, the thing to know about R.C. Spall is when he's not speaking in public wearing a suit and a tie, he looks like Columbo. You know, he, just, he looks like he needs to be ironed. And I looked at it, and I said, well, I'm thinking, where's the theology here? <laughs> I said, yeah, Dr. Spall, you look, you look great. You're great. He says, well, you know, I really should because my wife, Vesta, picked out the outfit for me. After all, I am a man under authority. And then he laughed like a fool. And I just thought, this is unbelievable. He's just a normal guy. He was a hero. Indelibly marked on my brain, as you can tell. That's the way we are. That's the way we could come into God's presence too. Awestruck. We don't come into God's presence and go, hey, Dad, how you doing? Great day. Am I good? This is not appropriate. Now, there are times when we have to desperately pray. I get that. But there should be that sense of, who am I coming in front of? This is, this is God. He holds all seven seas in the palm of his hand. Now, go figure. How majestic is our God? Seven seas, the seven seas in the palm of his hand. We know how deep they are, how vast they are, and he holds them right there. Well, the reverential awe of God is a kind of joyful desire of the heart to honor God when we're in his presence. And we have to be careful of doing anything that would uh, belittle our God. Now, the second principle uh, is this. Um, come as a beggar, or rather, spiritual insufficiency. Um, this second principle cuts across the grain of our thinking. I like that word insufficiency. As elders, we talk about it um, on a, a fairly regular basis. Just to remind ourselves what Paul said about church leadership in, in particular in, in 2 Chronicles 3, or 2 Corinthians 3, we are not sufficient for these things. Our sufficiency comes from God. And that's true for all of us, not just church leaders. In fact, John Calvin wrote, about the danger of thinking that we are self-sufficient. He called it unreality. It's unreal. If we remember that apart from Christ, we can do nothing that pleases God or affects the kingdom of God, that means we will have a strong sense of dependence on God. We, we won't be like that two-year-old, two you know, that says to his mom, don't, don't, I can do this. I don't need your help. But that's the way we are. We bring that with us even into our 70s. Don't help me. I can do this. Counselors will tell you 
that the only character flaw that can really hurt you is the one you don't recognize. So when we come into the presence of God, it requires an attitude of humility like Jesus' own because in us, our shortcomings are exposed before God our Father. So that dependence reminds us that uh, we, need, we need God. We, we don't gain his, his blessing by our own merits of, of you know, prayer or spiritual discipline or good works or any of those things. We come into his presence humbly. Self-sufficiency is the unreality that, that all of us deal with, and it was the unreality of the Pharisee in the, in the parable with Jesus, the Pharisee and the publican, when, when the Pharisee prayed, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like that guy. He's a swindler, a scoundrel, he's a thief. I'm glad I'm not like that. That is an unreal estimation of his own heart, and that's our unreality at times as well. So awareness of our insufficiency drives us to, to God for more forgiveness, more mercy, more help. And we have this promise from Jeremiah 29. This is God's promise to us. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. That's our promise. The rest of it was for Israel, but that first part was for Israel and for us now. If we seek him, we will find him. He will be found by us. So we come as spiritual beggars in a sense in that insufficient gladness or the gladness of our insufficiency that renounces all of our hope in personal merit or self-worth. Now, the third principle is very similar, very tied like to this last one, and that's to come with humility. That's the third principle. Humility renounces all self-confidence, and it asks God for mercy as the characteristic that we want woven into the fabric of our lives. And as Paul says, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in God. So what we're doing when we come in humility is, is we're just giving up all self-glorification. If there's one thing that all human beings everywhere can be known for, it is self-glorification. It's all about me. In our house, when our girls were growing up, it was this. The center of the universe. No, you're not. God is the center of the universe. And we give no thought to our worth or any self-assurance. Here's, here's a couple of verses that have shaped my thinking on this and, and uh, uh, I, I hope the way I come to the Lord in prayer. And they're from Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But... This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you want to catch God's eye, here's the characteristics we need to bring and live by. A contrite spirit, that is, I am, I am ready. When, when God exposes something in my heart that is unpleasing to him, I am ready to confess it, not defend it. I'm ready to ask God for mercy, and I am always ready to reverently submit to his word. That's what I think the word tremble there means. Trembles at his word. It's not a, a fearful thing, but a delightful thing. I delight to know the word of God. 
For Peter, humility meant something very specific that helps us here. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he wrote this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sounds good. Okay, humble yourselves so he may exalt you. Now, how do I humble myself? Notice the next words. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That casting, that is a sign of humility, right? It's a sign of asking for help. I don't need help. That's the, that's, that's the operating system of the human heart. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this on my own. But humility says, no, I need God's help. And to prove I need his help, I'm coming to him humbly, asking him to help me in my need. And I'm casting my care on him. That's what humility does in us. The last principle is to pray with confident hope. Pray with confident hope. Look at Matthew 7. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. One of the purposes that God has for us in prayer is that we come with a, with a wholehearted trust in his wisdom and not a trust in our own wisdom. It's as much to say, Father, uh, he, here's what I need. He, here's here's what, I, what I think I need and, and what maybe ought to happen. But you know best. Let your will be done. And I'm ready to receive that will, whatever it might be, even if it cuts against the grain of my life. God uses the stress of our adverse circumstances to build us a greater trust of heart. The stress of a circumstance stirs us to call on God right out of the middle of the pain that we're in and when trouble causes us to be driven out of our minds with distraction and we're weary with the struggle or we are afraid of something else worse coming down the pike, that's when the throne of grace becomes an anchor to us. That's where we need to go. And look at this promise from Psalm 50. Here it is. Here it is. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Why? I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Have you ever thought about your struggles, your bad circumstances, the stresses of your life as an opportunity for God to glorify his name in your deliverance? That's what that verse means. He will deliver you, and he'll get great glory out of what he has done, and you'll be very glad in him. Now, if we practice these four principles, coming to God in awe, coming as beggars, coming in humility, coming with confident hope, we have an enormous incentive for prayer. That means we can quite literally ask for anything, anything. Nothing is out of bounds, even a wrong thing. And we will ask for wrong things. Let's just admit it. But in the wisdom of God, the incomparable wisdom of God, God will temper the outcome according to his purposes for his glory and for our good. And so when we cry out and we make our appeals, uh, we're going to get a, a variety of answers in a variety of ways. Now, there's one more thing to mention uh, that uh, Thomas Boston made, uh, 
made a great deal of, and, I, and I, I think this is right. So we have these four principles. What do they stand on? What's the ground on which these principles stand? And the principle that is the foundation that we are adopted uh, in Christ. You know, Paul often says, you know, put off the old man, put off the old clothes or whatever, put on the new man that's created in the likeness of God and true fashion, uh, uh, true righteousness and holiness. And, and Boston said in, in one, of his, one of his sermons, he said, it's like putting on Jesus' clothes. Put, it, put on Jesus' clothes, meaning his righteousness. Now, if you, have had, if you have had daughters in your house, this has probably happened to you. They love to dress up, play dress up. Our daughters did. They would go in and they would ransack Nita's dresses and shoes, high heels and jewelry and hats and scarves and makeup. That was the funnest part. And then they would come out in a fashion parade. Can you, you know, six-year-old in high heels? It's, it's messy. And then they would say, Daddy, do I look pretty like mommy? <laughs> and I would say, yes, Shauna, you do it. And I love the lipstick across your forehead. It's perfect. I'd say, who did that? Abby did it. That's her younger sister. Okay, so there's just an impulse in us. You know, and my dad was an IBMer, and I went to Catholic school. I wore a shirt, uh, a white shirt, a tie and a jacket for eight solid years. I thought I was an IBMer because <laughs> that's what he did. I'm cool. I'm like my dad. We like to dress up. Not so much anymore, maybe. But that's the attitude that the Lord wants to, to inspire in us is to dress up like Jesus. What's that like? We dress up in his righteousness. We dress up in Jesus' righteousness. Now, we receive this righteousness. It's not our own. We receive it as a gift. And the Holy Spirit, in his work of salvation to us, works this into our lives so that our adoption is real, is real to us as, as anything that we see or feel or touch, that our adoption is real. That's where the assurance is grounded. And so, pardon me, in Romans 8.15... Paul writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the reality of our assurance, that God is our Father. Through adoption, through adopting us, these, these miserable sinners that he saves, by adopting us, God secures our belonging to him. That relationship never changes. In good times, bad times, in different times, it's always the same. He's always the same Father, no matter what we are facing. He is our Father. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit guarantees that God always, without fail, never missing a moment, never missing a beat, hears the prayers of his children. Now, if you doubt that God hears your prayers, I want to ask you a fairly personal and pointed question. If you've just doubted forever that God heard your prayers, let me ask you, do you know that you've been adopted by the Father or not? Have you submitted your life to Christ? Have you asked him to save you? 
That's where it starts. And if you're here and that's your situation, I want to pray for you as we close. But the second is Christians doubt too. We, we, we doubt. How do we, how do we know? That's, this, this question came from someone who said, I, I want to know. How do I know? And I want to pray for you that the Holy Spirit will give you more faith so that you can receive the assurance that you are heard by God because you are his adopted child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for those here that may not know you yet as a compassionate father. Uh, There may be fears about trusting you. We pray you remove those fears. There may be misgivings about trusting your fatherhood because they had earthly fathers who betrayed that important child-father bond of trust. Those wounds go deep. So we pray that you would heal those wounds all the way to their depth so that they might come and be free to enjoy a, a, a joyful anticipation of a warm reception by a heavenly father. Father, for those who struggle with doubt that you hear prayer, uh, give us more confidence in your many promises. In fact, Father, I pray that, that over this next week, we would see more and more of the promises of God that you hear our prayers and you also answer them. That it would just be an amazing array, like a, like a bouquet of flowers of amazing colors and varieties of the ways that you assure us that you hear and answer prayer, especially when we struggle according uh, to ask according to your will. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you will help us to um, live by prayer for ourselves, for our families, for our church. Shape our hearts to be places where your will is our delight. Help us not only to pray about the small things, but to long for a holy boldness, to ask for great things for your people, for our families, great things for our families, great things for ourselves, great things for our church, so that your majesty is glorified and spread throughout our lives and throughout our communities and throughout the world so that people know that you are the majestic God who names every star and not one name is missing. Father, we pray for these things. In the name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Well, let's stand and sing together before we go.